But from their perspective, it makes total sense. And I appreciated reading it. I was like, yes, I, I agree with everything you just said. Hello and welcome to Living a Life Through Books, the podcast about everything bookish. I'm your host, Dr. Shanaz Ahmed. And today we have the author of the book, Committed, Dr. Adam Stern. But before I continue, I wanted to say that your support of my podcast means a lot to me. The easiest way is to buy me a coffee. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash LLTB podcast. Every coffee you buy me helps keep me alert and this podcast going. I'll add the link in the show notes and I thank you. Back to the episode. Adam Stern, MD, is a psychiatrist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He has written extensively about his experience as a physician, including in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, the New England Journal of Medicine, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and the American Journal of Psychiatry. He lives with his family near Boston. And now, without further ado, pull up a seat, sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Dr. Adam Stern, the author of the book, Committed. Dr. Adam Stern, welcome to the Living a Life Through Books podcast. Super excited to have you here. Excited to have read your memoir. So tell us a bit about the memoir, like the process of how it came about. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Um, the process is a little bit difficult to describe because it wasn't uh, a very typical experience as far as I can figure out. I know that a lot of people who write memoirs are either uh, really uh, good writers, famous writers, or famous people in some way. And that's n- I'm neither of those things. I'm a, I'm a decent writer, I hope, but I'm not um, used to... Uh, Uh, the publishing world. This is all new to me. So the way that it came about is actually quite circuitous. I've been writing, you know, on and off for my entire life. It's been something that I do to help me process what I'm going through. It's something that I enjoy. And if people read the stuff that I write, if it makes it into some sort of publication, I've always just found that to be a bonus. How I came about writing this book, though, is quite different. So a few years ago, and this is something I don't know if if this might have come across at all before I came on the podcast here, but a few years ago, I was actually diagnosed with cancer, and that was a really uh, traumatic experience for me. I had to start writing about what it was like for me. Uh, I was a doctor one day, and the next day I was a patient, and for the last three years, I've been both. I've been a practicing psychiatrist and a patient living with with cancer. And I started writing about my experience at that intersection. And the pieces that I started writing ended up finding homes in really, really great publications. There was this level of self-disclosure that people found sort of compelling, I think. There was like a rawness and an authenticity to what I was writing. And so one of those pieces got the attention of a literary agent. And she said, hey, have you thought about writing a book? And I said, well, only my entire life. Um, And we talked about... (laughs) (laughs) Only your entire life, right. (laughs) And we talked about, you know, how... um, the, the cancer memoir has been written multiple times by lots of people. It's a very compelling subject, but there's, it's certainly not a novel subject. 
when breath becomes air is about a physician who who passes away with cancer and it's it's like the gold standard there's nothing better in in my mind um in terms of that topic and so i didn't want to rehash old territory and so we the, the new literary agent uh, and i put our heads together and we we spitballed ideas back and forth for months and we finally settled on you know it's always this this question of what's the story that i can tell that maybe other people have never heard before and for me personally i had this experience of going from a state school uh, suny upstate medical university which is a wonderful place to study medicine and then landing for psychiatric training at harvard feeling like a, a fish out of water feeling totally in over my head and knowing really what, what people don't realize is when you start psychiatry training or really any residency training you don't know the subject that you're going into uh, and so i thought that the road from that point to becoming this full-fledged psychiatrist was an interesting thing that hasn't really been told before. And then on top of that, there was a lot of drama in our class. I met my wife in our training. There was a lot of uh, interesting interpersonal things that I think will uh, be will keep readers really interested and involved and put together. I think it's it, it adds up to an interesting memoir. I I agree. I couldn't put it down. I don't know if your publicist told you or not. I had. I have not had have three books ahead of your book to read and I'm like well after I finished those but very fortunate she gave me the audio and I couldn't put it down oh that's great yeah I'm walking around with my headphones could not put it down I'm just completely mesmerized and uh, I enjoyed it a lot but um, let me ask you about psychiatry and cancer. How does your profession, you as a psychiatrist, help your ability to, I guess, manage your cancer emotionally? That's a great question. It's something I I hear a fair bit, I think, because sometimes people think, oh, well, he actually knows the tricks about how the mind works and how you can take the temperature down on anxiety and worry and rumination. And the truth is that I'm probably no better at that than anybody else who's living with cancer. I deal with the same kinds of, especially there's this phrase, scanxiety, scanxiety. I don't know how to to say it as much as I do to write it. You know, this combination of getting super anxious right before scans and when you're waiting for the results, you know, and, and there's also this tremendous life-altering kind of recalibration that happens after a life-threatening diagnosis where you start to think about what's important to me? What are the things that I want to pursue? What are the things I want to leave behind? And so all of those, all of those areas, I think maybe I was more attuned to address them, to think about them, but I certainly have had to carve my own path here going forward. Like I, I haven't actually... I don't think I was able to, from day one, say, oh, let me just use that cognitive behavioral skill that I teach people. It's, it's not like that. I go through the same emotions and have to figure it out just like everybody else. Right. Yeah. Can't just use CBT on yourself, huh? <laughs> like, <laughs> I wish I could. Yeah. Don't we all? Don't we all? <laughs> yeah. I, um, I recognize that, you know, when, when someone else is a patient or going through cancer or a potential diagnosis, it's easy to tell them, oh, it'll be fine. Everything's fine. You know, just it, it's going to be okay. But when it's you actually sitting there waiting for a diagnosis or going like in my case, you know, I, I've been through like, you know, go through a biopsy waiting for the lab results. And, mm-hmm. and that's when I realized 
it's very different. It's 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 a whole different field. It's a whole different ball game. That's just it. When we have our professional hat on, you it's almost like you're performing a character, right? You want to be your authentic self, which we all try to be, even when we're you know professionals. But then when you're a patient, it's almost like you're a child again, and you're going through it yourself. You're, you know, you rely on the people around you to help you, you know, sometimes people go to a psychiatrist when they're dealing with something like that. I know I have, and that's been very helpful for me. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a different kind of thing when you go through, when you're a patient, when you become a patient yourself. But you've been through a psychiatrist, even through the program in your book, we talked, you know, it talks about that, which was really, that was also very interesting that it was one of the recommendations. Hey, you're in the program, do this. Yeah, that's something that I think people, especially someone who's been following the the sort of path of psychiatry over the decades might find interesting because, you know, decades ago, psychiatry featured a lot of psychoanalysis uh, therapy where you go multiple times a week. And there's this tenet of psychoanalysis, uh, you know, Freudian kind of thinking that you can't do good psychotherapy unless you are in psychotherapy. So 30, 40 years ago, people used to, it was mandatory in psychiatric training. You had to be in analysis. And that's probably still the case for people who become psychoanalysts, uh, which still happens from time to time. It's, It's more of a rarity now. Most psychiatrists now are trained in the basics of therapy and certainly in medications and other interventions. And so for me, where it is right now with, with residency programs, training programs, they, it's, there's still this sort of um, vestigial structure of, look, we think it's probably a good thing for trainees to be in therapy because it gives them insight into themselves. And that gives them a better ability to connect with patients at an authentic level. You can also be on the lookout for things that might limit your vision. You know, uh, I, I give an example. If, you, if you're someone who has issues with a spouse or a parent or a sibling, and then you, tr- you treat a patient who reminds you at some unconscious level of that person in your life, you want to be attuned to that so that you can go out of your way to make sure it doesn't negatively impact the treatment. Um, And so that's why a program like the training program that I did, the Harvard Longwood program, went out of its way to to make therapy accessible to us, but they certainly never made it mandatory. Now, there are two therapy, like I have a therapist, but she's not a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. I I don't know what her qualifications, I know she's a, you know, certified therapist. Mm -hmm. Now, why would you have to go to a psychiatrist? When you don't need medication, I mean, as opposed to a therapist who can help you. Yeah, I love that question because one of the things in the book committed that I haven't done a good job of is describing the entire universe of therapists, right? I wish that there was room or sort of like an avenue where I could have done that, where I could have really paid tribute to the wonderful social workers that do therapy, to the wonderful counselors that do therapy, to uh, people with a PsyD degree where they went to school specifically to to have a doctorate in psychology, you know, which is different than going to medical school, becoming a doctor, and then specializing in psychiatry. So all of those are, are people, are, are uh, forms of therapists that are very, you know, every, there's a range in every specialty, right? But in every um, kind of treater, every kind of credential, there's a range. There are going to be wonderful professionals, and there are going to be people who are not as wonderful. But Everything that I just listed, even including uh, people with PhDs in psychology, 
they, you know, you can have a wonderful therapy experience with any of those. And so what the question to you that you asked is why would, why would I go to a psychiatrist if I don't need medicine? And the answer is you probably don't need to, unless you want to see someone who has that ability in their arsenal, you know, just in case medicine at some point might become indicated. Uh, if you're someone with depression where it's pretty severe and it's not yet responding to therapy, or if you're someone with severe anxiety, that's not responding to therapy. Sometimes it's useful to have someone where you can go and have all of that done together at once. Okay. No, that's, that's totally fair. I forgot my next question. Actually, I had this question in my mind and then I'm listening to you and it's like, ah, <laughs> but okay, let's move along. <laughs> Who did you write this book for? Who was your perfect audience? Who's your target audience? That's a really interesting question too, because I, I there, there's a, there's a, there's an answer that's probably somewhere in my head and my heart. And then there's an answer that is probably what, you know, like the publicist at the uh, publishing house would say. Sure. Uh, and, you know, I read actually, there was an early review in um, a journal called Library Journal, which, which is uh, a big deal in the librarian community, which, which I think librarians read often and respect. They were saying that Committed might be a book that people in academia might appreciate because it tells the journey of, there are themes within academia of, you know, sort of uh, imposter syndrome, feeling like, do I really belong here? Do I have the smarts or the skills to be here? Have I earned my right to be here? All of those things. And so this uh, review that was in Library Journal said ac uh, academics might like this, anyone interested in psychology or any trying someone who's trying to decide whether they might go into psychology or any kind of mental health treat, uh, treatment or training uh, might be a, a good person to read this book. And so that's a much more um, narrow view of who this book is for. But from their perspective, it makes total sense. And I appreciated reading it. I was like, yes, I, I agree with everything you just said. I'm paraphrasing that, of course. Sure, uh, sure. But from me and my heart and my and my mind, like who is this for? It's for me. And I tried and it's it's for my loved ones and it's for my friends and it's for people that I think would find the journey compelling. You know, I wrote it not for an academic audience and I wrote it not for really any particular audience, but rather uh, an audience that just is interested in sort of compelling human connection kind of stories. And I hope that that comes across. Yeah, no, for me, personally, I just felt, obviously, I've been through a residency program. So yeah, no, it's not a psych residency, but a residency. So walking through the hospital and dealing with fellow residents, and every residency has its own drama. And it was kind of nice. And it was there was a sense of acceptance by reading it from from being a resident that, hey, other programs have similar issues. <laughs> you know, you're not sure. the only nutty person here in the world. It was nice. It was nice to see, well, you know, other residencies also have stresses. Yeah. It's and, a, I feel like it's an almost universal experience for people who are training, you know, they've gotten a degree, but then they're training further to subspecialize. Right. And actually I'll tell you a very quick story, sure. which I, which I think is important, which is one of my, professional focuses is I, I'm one of the one of several psychiatrists that that will often treat resident now that I'm sort of a grown-up psychiatrist you know I've finished sure. my training some grown years up. Ago, um, <laughs> I'm someone that the hospital will sometimes refer patients uh, excuse me house officers residents 
two if they're struggling in some way. They're struggling with an adjustment disorder or they're uh, burnt out or they're anxious or they're depressed. They might get referred to me after going through the clinician health service. And something that they don't know is that there are people in every department that experience those things, right? So if I see someone, and I'm just making this up off the top of my head, sure. if I see someone from surgery, uh, they'll think oh, I'm probably the only person uh, here uh, from my whole department and they have no idea and I can't tell them, hey, there are two other people that you know just passed through um, recently. And so that's a hypothetical, of course, but there's no department where there are no uh, residents who, who come for help for psychiatric or mental health sort of uh, support, I think. Right. The other thing in your book, at least for me, the element that I got was um, that you cannot fix everything. And uh, yeah, it was like reading it, I'm going, oh, that's right. Psychiatrist A cannot fix everything. B, what impact that has on you? Yeah, those are two great points because A, I think that this idea of, hey, uh, my life isn't going well, I'm not happy in my life for X, Y, or Z reason, fix me, is something that psychiatry gets faced with in a way that a lot of other medical specialties don't. Some do, uh, certainly, but you know, if you have hypertension, you have high blood pressure, you go to the doctor and you probably have a sense that the doctor will be able to help you manage your hypertension. Some lifestyle interventions might help diet and exercise. Some medications might help. Um, maybe in really some very specific uh, circumstances, a procedure might be useful, but really you're going to be living with hypertension for the rest of your life. That's, that's sort of like an understood thing. But if you're someone with a chronic mood disorder or chronic anxiety or ADHD or any number of things, you might see a psychiatrist and say, you know, I'm not happy because of these symptoms. I'm struggling because of these symptoms help me make them go away. And a psychiatrist might be able to help you and they might not be able to help you. And that, that kind of thing comes across. And to your second point, it lands, a lot of it lands on the psychiatrist or the person who is unable to help because we have this complex where we want to be able to help everyone. And there are bad outcomes. Sometimes, very often, you can help someone just by keeping them at the same level they're at because they were on a downward trajectory before that. Or you can help someone by uh, setting goals that are attainable with them and achieving those goals, but not ridding them entirely of all their symptoms. I know psychiatry, like dentistry, like my own profession, has a very high rate of alcohol, drug abuse, and suicide. Yeah. Tell me about that. Tell me. Yeah. I, I, I think that, I think you're, A, A, you're, you're absolutely right about that. And so I think we have a poor understanding of exactly what the factors are that contribute to that. But if I may speculate as a sort of informed person, I think that there is an element of burnout slash what, what a lot of people these days are calling moral injury uh, that's related to these fields. Uh, and the reason for that is that to get to where you and I are professionally, we had to go through a lot of school, right? It's uh, from a young age, from the time, really, frankly, I was like 20 years old, I had to decide uh, I'm going to take this path which was to decide in college, I'm going to become pre-med and then go into med school. And then from med school, you have to decide on what specialty. 
And from that specialty, you have to train for several years. And then finally, eventually, after, you know, basically a, a decade of hoping and waiting and working really hard, you get to do the thing that you wanted. And that is a lot to live up to. I think that when reality hits and uh, that our professions are filled with things like bureaucracy, things like monotony, things like challenging or unrewarding, difficult encounters, unappreciative staff, let's say, or whatever it might be. Sure. And yeah, absolutely. My staff under the bus. My staff is wonderful and always treats sure, me right. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, when you put a profession and your professional identity attached to that profession on a pedestal, and then you go out into the world, I think it's extremely hard to prevent a feeling of injury, moral injury, or, or internal sort of cognitive dissonance. Like I've spent my whole life, I've identified myself as this thing. And now here I am doing it and I'm not happy or I'm not as I, I made it. And yet something's still a little bit missing. And that kind of thing, I think, can often lead to this mental health disorder, suicide, that kind of uh, outcomes. Right. And, and it's really interesting with that. There's still something missing, but that's something that we in the profession feel, but other people still look at us and go and I don't know why you're doing this podcast or why you're doing all this. <laughs> it's like, because there's something missing. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing this. And they look at you like, what is going on here? What's wrong with this picture? So it adds to, I guess, to being an actor for society also, essentially. Yeah. I think you're getting at this idea that what we do is not who we are. Right. And so right. we're, we, we entered, uh, you know, sort of adulthood as uh, well-rounded individuals. And what our training does is get us more and more narrow, right? We get more and more focused, more and more subspecialized. And every door that we pass through is a door that closes behind us. Like I can't go back and decide I'm going to, well, I could, but I would never go back and <laughs> right. say, I'm going to do anesthesiology now. Um, you know, that kind of thing, you know, you you choose a path and there are positive and negative consequences to that. And what you're getting at, I think, is the reason that I write, you know, that you doing this podcast and the reason that I write, it's it's that there's a part of me that existed before and I liked it and I want it to exist now and I'm going to keep doing it, you know? And I think that that's a good thing, generally speaking. Uh, where, where it becomes challenging is, for me as a psychiatrist is if my patient's if it somehow, if it ever gets to a point of like, oh, I don't know if I can trust that psychiatrist because he's a writer, uh, maybe he'll want to put what I tell him into a story or something, you know, that becomes something <laughs> that I would worry about. But I, I try to make sure that my patients appreciate that I'm not doing anything like that. What do you want your um, legacy to be? Legacy is a complicated word, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But you're right. I, I, actually, the other day I listened to your interview um, with the author of uh, Punch Me Up to the Gods, I think. It was Brian the, Broom. Yes. Yeah, I Brian asked Broom. the same question. Yes. And you asked him that question. Yes, and I, I did. Thought, and his response was so interesting to me because he was taken aback as, as uh, one right. is. When and he was like, why am I dying? I'm like, that's what he said. That's exactly that's what, what he said. said. Right. And as I was listening to that, I thought, isn't that interesting? Because A, we're all dying. We're yes. living toward death. Uh, that, that's essentially yes. something that we've Unfortunately, but yes. And so your question is a universal question. And his response, which I thought that was a wonderful interview. I enjoyed listening to it so much. Thank you. Both, both on both sides. Uh, I think your style of interview is so interesting because you, you ask questions that are 
authentic, you know, that, that well, you're thinking you. about. Yeah. And he, uh, he answered in a very interesting way in a lot of ways, but uh, enough about Brian Broom. Um, sure, sure. <laughs> let's <laughs> no, market this, your book. Let's market committed right now for a exactly, bit too. <laughs> no, I, I, we're joking, of course. But sure. you know, his, his answer of "Am I dying?" I thought, well, what if you were dying? And I thought, of course, I almost always bring it back to myself. Uh, you know, uh, in terms of a little bit of uh, narcissism, and think, well, I kind of am dying. You know, with this, I have this very advanced cancer that I've had five surgeries for in the last three years. I've been on three different immunotherapies. Uh, I'm doing well right now. I, there's no, no evidence of cancer in my body, but I think about legacy all the time, Okay. more than probably is healthy. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you asked me that question, but still, even after thinking about it so much, I don't have a good answer for you. My legacy, what I would love and more than anything in the world, is if I have two boys, if they grow up to be good human beings and they have some sense of who I was, that's it. You know, that's the that's the be all end all for me. They're little right now. Uh, so, you know, I, I want that more than anything else in the world. Part of why I write and part of why I try to get what I write into print somehow is that I want there to be a, a, a you, you actually brought this up in that last interview in terms of um you know, the books will outlive us all, I think you said. And like, that's true. To a certain extent, that's true. You know, copies of this book will be dug up, you know, 2000 years from now, if by some archaeologist trying to figure out what our society was all about. So, um, so, so that kind of thing does appeal to me, the idea that if I can put something into words, and I think it's just right, and it tells a story of value, that it might hold that value longer than I'm here on this earth. Uh, And that's a powerful thing. Yes. Have you read and or heard of the book, The Last Lecture by Randy Posh? Yes, I haven't read the book, but I did uh, watch the lecture some years ago. I haven't gotten myself to rewatch it since my diagnosis, but I've thought about it. I did it the other way around. I read the book and then I watched the lecture and the lecture was just not that great. Honestly, I'll be very honest. I read the book. And then I was like, this, this is nothing. The book had just, it was so rich with what he leaves behind, because at the end of the book, he mentions that this whole book is really left behind for his children. Yeah. And I just, and I just thought it's beautiful. I I love how you bring up children. So I'm going to ask a difficult question. I mean, it's difficult, but this is something I'm kind of processing with is for people like myself who do not have children, what do we leave behind? Or what, you know, I'm just, I'm just kind of processing because everyone who has children, it's always when you ask them this question of what makes you happy, it's always like, I'm living for this future generation. Yeah. And I think to be very frank about that, there's a bit of cognitive dissonance where they have sacrificed, you know, you you have to sacrifice so much when you have children, your quality of life, your ability to explore, to travel, to have an adult relationship that's uninterrupted, you know, like at any given moment, Um, all these things are sacrifices that we do, you know, once you have the children, a good parent does them because they have to do them and because they want to do them, hopefully. So when I think about what people without children, what, what are the things that get their, what, that gets their blood going? What do they feel passionate about? I think more in terms of that the world is, is sort of like your oyster in the, in, in the sense that 
you can do anything with your time here on earth. When I guess I'm not phrasing this the way I want it, want to phrase it. Uh, what I'm trying to get at is my wife and I, we would love to uh, spend a year in New Zealand, you know, uh, we would love to do X, Y, or Z and, but we can't do those things. And that's fine. We've chosen this path. Right. And sure. it's, we wouldn't trade it because we love our children. I've already mentioned they're like the most important thing in the world to me, but if they, if we didn't have children, we'd be living a very different kind of existence, you know? Right. And so I don't know, I can't answer for you. Certainly like what, what I would do or what I would find most valuable in that, but there would be a lot more opportunity for, for self-exploration and also living in the moment of like experience, you know, uh, sure. I think we underestimate the value of having experiences, rich experiences and remembering them and making, incorporating them into your psyche. And we overestimate the value of things and what we, what we produce, you know? And so that's my, that's my best answer is, is, is if in a world without children, it's more, but it would be more about how do I live this life to the fullest and incorporate that to be the best person I can. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Tell me about your wife. Tell me about Rachel, because I'm just, there's Rachel's all over the book, right from the beginning, you know, right from when you mentioned when she shook your hand and she said, Rachel, and walked away. Yep. All the way to, oh my gosh, that scene at the beach. Yeah. And it's like, oh, wow. I, I, I'm not going to give it away for our readers, but it's just the <laughs> scene at the beach. It was right out of a movie. I'm telling you. I, I was like, did he make this up? I mean, I swear I saw this in a movie somewhere. This yeah. This is same scene. Life imitating art because, you know, that, I w- I've actually had the thought recently, like, oh, that's one of those examples. If I had the freedom to really carve out a story that was most dramatic for, for most drama, I would tell it differently. I wouldn't tell it the way I told it, which was truthfully uh, and truthfully, like it's true. The very first time I met my wife, I was like, she's, she, she, you know, it was one of those experiences of uh, seeing someone and feeling like they are, you know, just I don't know. Uh, all the words that are coming to my head are are trite and, uh, you know, are, are cliched. But, you know, this, there was this feeling of like this person's different. Uh, and then when I introduced myself with over eagerness, you know, she she does. My wife will openly acknowledge she has a very flat affect, especially when you don't know her well. And uh-huh. so she just shook my hand sort of limply and said, hi, Rachel, you know. Uh, that right. And so it was an incredibly deflating uh, experience. And that's, that was our starting point in real life. Right. It, it took when we became very good friends. And, and as you say, it took years. Well, you haven't said that, but it, you know, the readers of the book will discover that we are friends for years before we can actually cross that threshold, you know, and um, the scene on the beach is, is absolutely true. You know, it's just one of those things that is, was heartbreaking at the time. Right. It, it surprised. I don't know if I think it did surprise me, you know, because I was like, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen? And then it's like, oh, wait, no, this is movie. This is definitively movie direction. But uh, what does Rachel think about this book? I'm sure she has been reading through every iteration or has, has she been completely been like, nope, I'm out of this. I'll read it when it's done. Tell me she, about that. You was the first person to read it. Uh, okay. an early, you know, an earlier draft, like the very first roughest draft she read. But before that, when I came up with the idea for this book and I pitched it to my agent and my agent was into it, 
I said, all right, I need to have this conversation with my wife because I can't do this book without her blessing, right? And my wife, as readers will, will learn, is entirely closed. She's private. She values her privacy, right? And uh, she wants, she doesn't want, you know, her coworkers to know who she's dating. Right. That was the just, world, you know. Oh my God, that blew my mind for how long? I was like... <laughs> That's another thing that's like out of Grey's Anatomy. It's like the secret relationship that we had at work, you know, sharing an office, mind you, uh, while we were starting to date. So that was a conversation I had with her a couple of years ago before starting to work on this book. And she was on board with it. And she was particularly on board with it. You know, she knew that I would give her sort of veto rights on like she could read it and tell me you know, that's uh, that part you got to cut uh, that kind of thing. Right. Um, and and then it helped that it got bought by like, a you know, it was, it was uh, HMH Books, which was which has now been bought by HarperCollins. And, you know, it's like these are legit publishing houses and it was a legitimate thing. So she I think she got more and more on board as she realized, like, OK, this will be a great thing for him and for us. And, you know, it, she can tolerate it because they, there's also still a degree of privacy where, you know, things are disguised somewhat. And so uh, a lot of people in her world, her patients, for example, mm-hmm. ideally will not really even know that it's her. We'll see. Is her name Rachel? No, it's not. OK, OK. All right. I just, I didn't know because I, okay. Because I know you said some names are disguised and you know, maybe everyone's names disguised. I don't know. Yeah. I was just like, well, yeah, that was one of the, that was sort of one of the bargaining pieces that happened at the beginning. I said, I can write, I went back to my agent and said, I could write this book. She's given me permission. And I actually circled back to every one of my residency classmates uh, and got their sort of support. You go ahead. A couple of them said, yeah, go ahead. Just don't include, uh, my name or, you know, whatever. And so most of the people in the book have false names, actually. And the reason is just that they're, they're professionals. And this is, you know, some of the stuff that's in there is their story as much as my story. And so I don't want to, I never, I never wanted to negatively impact anyone else. And the other thing that I have to be fully uh, transparent about is that a few characters have been, I've made composites, you know, there were 15 of us in the class. And so a couple of times I've taken a couple different people that fit a certain archetype and I've included stories from multiple people into one character uh, that's based mainly on one person, but has sort of borrowed stories from another person in real life. Sure. Oh no, it's totally cool. Yeah, to- totally cool. So and that, that was the other that was the other thing I said to the uh, agent at the very beginning, and and then the editor was like, "I can write this book, but for it to be you know based in reality, it needs to start with this little author's note, you know, which is to say, look, I've taken these liberties to to protect privacy, you know, uh, I've I've done these things. Reader, be aware, like these things have been deliberately you know disguised, and the rest is sort of real, you know, and, sure. and yeah, no." Take it to I- heart. Well, there's also the legal elements of this. Yeah. Because yeah. you have to, A, get their permission because you can't put, like, let's say Rachel's name is Rachel and she didn't want you to do this and you did it, that you were looking at a legal battle on your hands. Right, right. Yeah, and actually, I, I over the course of the writing of the book, I, I did consult, like, two different attorneys, one privately and one through the publishing house to mm-hmm. say like, how can I do this properly, you know, and make mm-hmm. sure that I did dotted all my I's and crossed my T's. So that at least is one thing that I feel a bit more um, at ease with, but right, certainly, yeah. certainly an issue to think about. Right. The only thing is now here's the thing is if your wife 
took on your last name and she's doctor, you know, then um, from a psychiatric point of, I mean, psychiatric point of view, you know, like from a really crazy patient point of view, I'm, you know, you could always track someone down unless you want to change your name. And <laughs> like, you're like, nope, my real, my name is really not Adam Stern. I just kind of, <laughs> this is my pseudonym, but you know, it's just, I'm just throwing it out there. I just yeah. find it. I used to think about, as I was writing the book, I used to think, oh, if only I could have written this under a pseudonym. I, this thought came back over and over again. If only this was really a, a book of fiction based on some experience, you know, then I could have taken, I could have made it so uh, even more dramatic. You know, I, I kept having that thought. Uh, but, you know, that's the challenge of writing a memoir is writing. It's not the story of your life, but it's a story from your life, you know, and trying to pick parts of your life that have happened and fit them onto this narrative. And every character in there has to have sort of an arc and figure out, And but, but it has to be based from real life and what happened with that person and how did they, where do you start their story and where do you end it? Because in real life, you know, their story just kept on going for, you know, most of them. And so um, it's the, that kind of thing is really, really uh, something, a challenge that I never anticipated in writing a memoir. What about the concept of taking all your stories and writing a fiction, a psych psychological thriller written by a psychiatrist. Now that would be cool. What do you yeah. think about that? I've done that. I've done it. Uh, to be very honest, I did that. I self-published it years ago. Uh, actually, I did it in a way, you remember like old, old timey writers, this is before either of our times, certainly, but some of them would publish in, in periodicals. They would publish a chapter and then the next month, another chapter, you know, like Mark Twain or, you know, people like that, okay. Steinbeck, maybe it would like come out one chapter in a month in a magazine. And that's how people would read novels back then sometimes. And so I, this must've been 10 years ago. I said, I'm going to do that. I wrote a fiction, a, a book of fiction about a medical student who has a psychotic break and uh, what that experience would be like. That book, I put, I poured every bit of creativity into and let my, let myself go wild with storytelling. I posted it one chapter at a time, one day for the month of, there were like 31 chapters and it was like the month of March, some year in 2010 or something. I posted one chapter a day and I think probably a hundred people read it, you know, something like that. That's cool. Like, yeah. But I did it, you know, and then once it was totally posted on Facebook, I took it down and I said, you know, I'll just put it like you said, you're talking about legacy. I was like, I'll just bind it. You know, I'll just self-publish it so that there's a thing that people can hold. So I've done that once. If committed is a huge hit, I'll circle back to the publisher and say, hey, you want to publish this novel that I did too? I think so. Why not? I yeah. absolutely would do it. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to read it too. I mean, that, yeah. that was really cool. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what was the hardest part to write in Committed? Yeah. The hardest part was capturing, there, there's a dynamic that happens in psychiatric residencies where the patients very often, especially in the first two years where you're on inpatient services, emergency rooms, the patients are incredibly ill. Many of them are suicidal. Many of them have psychosis, mania. These are devastating conditions. The experience of being a resident is you have to, on, the, on one shoulder, hold that devastation and hold it with the patients and try to help them through it. And on the other hand, you have to survive and you're in your 20s. I was, I was 26 when the book takes place, you know, when it starts. Right. You're meeting, you're in a new city. I was moved to Boston from Syracuse. You're meeting people for the first time. You're in the same group with the same 15 people. 
for the next four years, like those are basically like most of your friends, you know, right. and most of the people you spend all your time with. So there ends up being a lot of also humor and sort of almost um, camaraderie, like what I'm, I've never served in the military, but I imagine that people in the military develop this kind of like, hey, we're all in it together. We're going to laugh together. We're going to cry together. We're going to um, survive mm-hmm. together kind of thing, hopefully. And that exists. And so I wanted to capture, I really think this, I've never seen it before. And so I really think this might be the first book that I wanted to capture that duality, you know, the devastation and the lightness together as it happened in real life. Okay. But it's not easy. I had, I couldn't figure out how to do it without trying really hard and rewriting and editing. And, you know, it took a lot of effort to try to thread that needle. And I think I've done it, but readers will have to let me know. No, it's it's really good. I I just really loved it. I I love that that balance of there's all the stuff that you're you know like you said sitting with the patient and yet they have their condition and it it's it really opened my mind. I was married to a psychiatrist, by the way, several way 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 back when, but that's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> that's a totally different story. I understand that we're not the easiest people to be married to. That's, that's something that uh, I don't know. I certainly know anything about your, your ex, but, and I, I won't speak to that at all, but I'll say that my wife and I are married as two psychiatrists, which is a not uncommon thing because we're strange enough. Our profession makes us either we're self-selected to be strange enough or it makes us strange enough that we uh, fit well together, but I'm sure it could be a challenge otherwise. Ah, no, my, my husband's, it's a different story, but, but you know, what's interesting is I know another psychiatrist or rather he's going into psychiatry. He might've just graduated from his residency. It's around there. Very, uh, there's a certain element of silence that comes with them. The very, um, you know, sit back, you know, back away and then just kind of observe. And, and it's like, it's really, it's kind of scary almost because it's like they, they observe and then they soak everything in. This is how it feels from an outsider that you are like a soul sucker. You suck everyone's soul and you know what's going on. Like <laughs> That's exactly, you, you've hit the nail on the head for the sort of the uh, the idea, the, the gestalt feeling about like you meet someone at a dinner party and they say they're psychiatrist, you're going to sort of, oh, uh, do I have to hold things back? Do I have to, uh, are they going to be sort of analyzing me is the, qu- the typical question. And it's like, no, I, from the psychiatrist perspective, who's just trying to have dinner and meet people and be nice, you know, it's like, well, no, I, if I'm listening, it's just because I'm trained to listen a certain way. But like, I try to not, uh, I certainly try not to engage with people at that level. You know, it's the, what you're getting at also is that cerebral thing where we literally were trained to wait that silence isn't an enemy. Now your listeners who have just been hearing me ramble for an hour or whatever it's been are going to be like, that guy doesn't sound like a psychiatrist at all. He's talking way too much. Um, (laughs) But in, in a session, we were trained that silence is good. Silence breeds a certain tension that then will let a patient say something that they need to say. And so you as the psychiatrist have to become adept at sitting in silence and letting it fill the room you know? And so in the early, early goings, people are trained to sort of count to seven before you even think about saying something to bring up, you know, to move the conversation. Yeah, I was there. I was reading the book and I was in the room and I'm, I'm counting one, <laughs> two, and I'm like, this is taking forever. Like seven forever. never comes. Right. <laughs> like, 
Okay, I normally ask the question of what's your secret talent, but I'm not going to ask you that question. I'm going to switch it around. If you could be a superhero, hmm. what special powers would you have? Wow, that's a great question. I haven't been asked that in a long time. And there are two answers. I'm going to be very, very, very frank. There are two answers. There's the answer that like, if I wanted to do good in the world, you said superhero. So it's like doing good, you know, a do-gooder superhero, then it would be like basically Superman's powers. Those are pretty, you can't really beat Superman's powers in terms of like, he's strong, he's fast, he's indestructible in, you know, in the absence of uh, kryptonite, like you could do a lot of good if you were Superman, but like, there's often, I've also, I, I have heard this other question of like, would you rather be able to be invisible or fly? And that frames it in a different way. Cause it's not, you're not weighed down by the pressure of doing good. Now it's just like a skill that you have. Right. And when right. I think about that, I have a harder time answering because if you're invisible, imagine, you know, this is like what you're getting at with like psychiatrists sucking souls and like, imagine like all the things you could observe just like in terms of people, not people watching in a creepy way, but like, but observing the world without being in the world. You know what I mean? Does that make any sense? You know, yes, absolutely. You could see see authenticity everywhere because you wouldn't be changing the environment by being in it, you know? Right. Um, So invisible, invisibility, or those days when you just want to like get from here to there without interacting with the world. That's another, uh, not, that's sort of like another selfish kind of way to have that superpower, but flying would just be so wonderful. So it's hard to, it's hard to give up the idea of like just being able to soar above the earth. It, it sounds like such a wonderful gift. Okay. No, it's the school. That's really yeah. cool. What makes you happy? Oh man. So these days there are, there's so many things that make me feel happy, but one of the things I've had to train myself up on mm-hmm. is practicing gratitude. That sounds like a strange phrase, but it's a real skill. It's a real thing that you can actually get better at and practice and do. And I've started to do it a a couple of years ago. I started to do it where every night I think about like, what are the things that I'm happy about today? Like what, what went well today? What am I grateful for today? And doing that actually has opened my eyes to this whole world of gratitude, this whole world of there's so much good in my life. Almost always when I come up, I always force myself to think of like three things and at a minimum, there can be more, but three before I sort of let myself, all right, let me go, go to sleep. And almost always, you know, one of them has to do with family in some way, you know, something that made me happy the last couple of years, something's often had to do with this book and like get, you know, today it might be like, I had this great conversation and it was uh, terrific and I, I enjoyed it. What fun that was, what, how grateful I am to have the opportunity to, to talk to you today, you know, sure, yes. uh, nothing, nothing was Me guaranteed in this, in, in this world, nothing's guaranteed. So um, when you start looking at the world like that, like the good things in your life, that it's necessary to take time to appreciate them, then happiness is all around you, you know? And then a lot of times it can be a work thing or, uh, Hey, it's 70 degrees and sunny here today. Like that's beautiful. You know, like right. those, those days where you're just like, this is uh, a wonderful weather day. It can be something as minor as that makes you happy. A walk, from work to your car, you know, something like that, where you just feel the air on your skin, that kind of thing. I don't want to get too much, like sound like too much of a hippie here, but all of <laughs> no, those, it's great. All of those things make me happy. I love it. Okay. Last two questions. Okay. Okay. Uh, the question is, since you are a writer, you must be a reader. I'm, I'm making the assumption here. So what are your top books? Give me three to five books 
you would recommend that everyone should read? Wow. So I, I think you're right that I am a reader, but I'm not as good at reading as I should be. I don't know why that is, except this, I, I came to this realization late in life, you know, because late, late in my own life at 36 years old, which is to say that audiobooks are easier for me than bound books. Sure. Uh, and I've started listening to a lot of books where, uh, as I had a harder time reading a lot of books for various reasons. And a friend of mine who I used to work with said, well, of course, he's a neurologist, but he said to me, of course, uh, you're a psychiatrist, you're trained, either you're trained, you trained up that skill of listening, or you came to the profession with in part because you like to listen to stories being told, right. And so I've started listening much more. And so I'm not a literary guru. I never had a lot of skill in even in, in advanced English classes, you know, I wasn't particularly a good student in that way. I always liked books. I loved books that were down to earth, even when they're great literature, that they were readable, you know, that I could understand them. More power to people who read books that they struggle to understand, that they have to work to understand. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's like I need to be compelled emotionally and understand what I'm reading or try to make sense of what I'm reading. So for me, some of the, the classics that I think everybody should read, I liked a lot of Steinbeck, uh, who I mentioned earlier. So I like East of Eden is like an epic, wonderful, wonderful book. I liked a lot for more casual stuff. I like Nick Hornby books. Okay. Uh, they've made a bunch of movies out of them. And okay. like you were sort of getting at earlier, like the books were always better than like the visual representation of them. But so I, lo I really love books like High Fidelity and uh, ones like that from from very casual writing for a more sort of younger audience, Catcher in the Rye was, is a book where you realize, and Catcher in the Rye, I love in part because there's one sort of theory about it that the whole thing is Holden Caulfield talking to a shrink, basically talking to a psychiatrist. And if you think about it from that perspective, it kind of uh, opens up your whole worldview, especially as a psychiatrist, looking back on it. House of God was the original medical it's a novel, but largely assumed to be based on his real life experiences. Okay. And House of God is like a classic, entertaining, funny, scandalous. It was written a long time ago. So there's a lot of sexism and things like that in the characters and the story. But if you can get beyond that, it's like a, just a classic and a wonderful, wonderful book. And he's a really interesting guy. So yeah, those are off the top of my head. Those yeah, are no, no, that, that's great. That's great. I, uh, you mentioned one of my favorite books, which is East of Eden, because when someone asked me my top books i mean hands down i'd be like oh east of eden it's like yeah uh it's tim so shell right tim mm -hmm. shell um last question you already know this question so i'll just ask it anyway describe your book in three words journey to acceptance i love it i love it that's so beautiful well Thank you. Well, Dr. Adam Stern, thank you so much for coming and spending this hour with me. I'm really excited. Your book comes out July, July 13th. July yeah. 13th. And um, yeah, really. Thank really you. Thank you so much for having I, me. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. So what did you guys think? I'll tell you what. I was blown away when he told me he had listened to one of my podcast episodes and he quoted me. It was surreal. No one has ever quoted what I have said back to me. And I was like, whoa, that was neat. And at the end, when he said one of his favorite books was East of Eden, I was like, yes. But anyway, 
Check out the book Committed. It should be available at your local bookstore. I highly recommend it. I don't know if it's because I've been through a hospital-based residency program myself, but there's a certain universality in his stories. Upcoming for my podcast, I'm continuing with Book Club and Month in Review. I'll have more author interviews for August. At the time of this recording, I haven't read those books yet, let alone scheduled interviews. So I'll just mention that I have upcoming author conversations. And uh, that's all I have for this episode. Before I go, I want to talk a bit about a great audiobook app. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your local favorite bookstore. Choose from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from bestsellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of this podcast can get two books for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that is L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code L-L-T-B podcast. With every listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'll add the links in the show notes. If you love this episode or any of my previous episodes, please take a moment to write me a review on Apple Podcasts. Please share this podcast with your family and friends and through your social media channels. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram on Living a Life Through Books. You can reach me through email. My address is livingalifethroughbooks at gmail.com. Join the conversation with me on the audio app called Swell. My tag on Swell is at Bookish Podcast. It's a different kind of audio app, but it's still a good way to reach me. My website is shanazahmed.com. That is S H A H N A Z A H M E D dot com. The opening and closing music to this and all my previous episodes was composed by my husband Brad Slavic. I'm Dr. Shanaz Ahmed with Living a Life Through Books signing off. Remember to water the seeds within you. It's time. <laughs>